good to see y'all here this morning. I, uh, you know, I was in a sermon series for a long time on the apostles and then some other famous folks in the New Testament. And I thought, you know what? There are some, there's some guys to look at in the Old Testament too. And so I want to start this morning with Abraham and, and look at him. He's kind of called the friend of God. And then we'll look at Isaac and Jacob and, and some other Old Testament patriarchs and see what sets them apart and why they are lifted up in the, in the scriptures as someone, you know, that we can learn from and emulate and follow. Um, the passage I'm, I'm reading from is not even in the Old Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Roll Call of the Faithful. I think I used this a couple weeks ago uh, for our, our homecoming anniversary because of the faithful who preceded us. But in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12, and then 17 through 19, it talks about Abraham as the writer of Hebrews is looking back and trying to encourage his readers by the faith of those folks in the Old Testament. What made them stand out? What made them so unique and so important? Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, and I love this verse because it was kind of my marching order for a long time through seminary. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was to go. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. How about that? So I just noticed that. It wasn't that Sarah was faithful, it's that she considered God faithful, who made a promise. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now over to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Hence, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now I'm going to skip over to James 2.23 because this is where it's just a couple pages over because James is right after Hebrews. This is where Abraham is described as the friend of God. I'm going to back up to 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So Abraham was called the friend of God. I couldn't find anywhere in the Old Testament where Abraham was called the friend of God, but apparently between the time the Old Testament was written and the time when James was written, the, the, the title friend of God became attached to Abraham's name. Abraham, the friend of God. What made him God's friend and what made him so, so important to be kind of at the pinnacle of our faith, kind of the, the father, the, the head of our faith. Because every time, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when you read God's name, you read God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how he's identified over and over again. So what made Abraham so unique, so significant? 
that he was used to identify the God that we worship. Let's bow together. Father, as we come now to consider your servant Abraham, we see someone who was flawed, yet had great faith and obeyed, even when he didn't know where the end of the road might take him. And so help us, Lord, to be willing to take similar risks, to open our lives and hearts up to you, to go where we don't know where we may end up as long as we're walking with you. It doesn't matter where we end because we know we'll be with you and that's what counts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, there are all different kinds of fame. There was a young boy named Patrick Henry and he worked for a grocery store in a small town. And his job was to deliver groceries on his bicycle to the homes of the customers who had shopped at that little small-town grocery store. Well, on one occasion, he delivered groceries to a newcomer in town. And when the newcomer asked the boy what his name was, he said, My name is Patrick Henry. And the man said, That's quite a famous name, young man. And the little boy said, Well, I guess so. I've been delivering groceries in this town for two years. <laughs> so... <clears throat> You know, there are folks who are legends in their own minds, and, and uh, that little boy certainly thought Patrick Henry was famous because of the way he delivered groceries. There, there are other folks who are famous for what they do, and it's not temporary, it's permanent. It's, it's not in their mind, it's, it's in time, it's legendary. And that's what Abraham is. All through the Old Testament, as I said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we see in James 2.23, he is known as the friend of God. What made him God's friend? Why did people start calling him that? How did, he arrive, how did people arrive at that description of him? Well, we know a little bit about Abraham. I mean, he was somebody who lived 4,000 years ago. That's a long time to be remembered. And Abraham, either through flesh or faith, is the, is the head of three major religions in the world today. Three religions trace their lineage back to Abraham. You have the Jewish religion, and you have the, Christian, the Christian religion through that, and then you also have Islam, who also trace their roots back to Abraham. 4,000 years ago, what made him so remarkable? What made him so unique? Well, it says in verse 8, the faith that distinguished him. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he went out not knowing where he was going. So he, he obeyed God and went out. In verse 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. So he and Sarah had faith to believe and conceive a son. And then that son through whom God was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore, Abraham was willing to take Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice, his only son. And that's when God said, wait, I didn't want you to sacrifice Isaac. I just wanted to know your heart. Do you love me more than you love the things of this world? So that's what made Abraham famous. It was his faith. And we need to dissect that a little bit more and look at it and see what it really means. First of all, I'm just amazed that some of these stories about Abraham are included in the Bible. 
When you realize these folks who, who wrote these stories, even though under the inspiration of God, painted pictures that were real of the people in the Bible. They didn't just whitewash all of their background. They didn't gloss over the mistakes and failures they made. Why do they do that? I think because if all they did was just talk about the good things they did, then you and I would sit there and say, I can't do that. I'm not perfect. You know, I can't be like Abraham. I don't, you know, Abraham never made any mistakes. No, Abraham made mistakes. And the Bible includes those. There's one, it's called the embarrassing beginning is what I wrote down here. There's one where Abraham showed that he didn't trust God, that he wasn't faithful. And it, it comes in Genesis chapter 12. It's a, an interesting story. Um, there's a famine in the land where Abraham and Sarah are living, and so they retreat to Egypt. And while going into Egypt, Abraham looks at Sarah and says, you know what, you're a mighty good-looking lady. And I'm afraid some of these rulers here in Egypt might want to have you as their wife. Now, if, if they think you and I are married, they'll kill me to take you as their wife. And so Abraham told his wife, Sarah, don't tell them you're my wife, tell them you're my sister. And that's exactly what happened. Pharaoh saw Sarah and he took her into his harem and plagues fell upon the land. And when Pharaoh realized that Sarah was married, that, he was not, that she was not Abraham's sister, he brought her back to Abraham and said, why didn't you tell me this was your wife? Look what you've done here. And he gave orders to his men to let Abraham and Sarah go with all that they had. All that takes place in Genesis 12. And I'm sitting there reading that story and I'm wondering, where was Abraham's faith when they went to Egypt? And why even relate this story? Kind of a sordid story about Abraham and Sarah and all that happened. There's a second thing that, that Abraham did in uh, Genesis 16. And you know this story too, probably. God makes a promise to Abraham that all his descendants will be numerous and Abraham and Sarah are up in years and they don't have a son and Abraham gets impatient. What does he do? He takes Sarah's servant, Hagar, as his wife and they have a son named Ishmael. And as you might imagine, Hagar and Sarah don't get along very well, uh, to say the least. Sarah is jealous of Hagar. I'm sure Hagar rubs it in Sarah's face that she has a son and Sarah does not. And so Sarah twists Abraham's arm and makes him send Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness to live. Well, how did that work out for them? Hagar and Ishmael and, their, and Ishmael's father Abraham become the father of the Arab nation and Islam. And you see how well the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have gotten along over the years. The, the Jews and the Muslims have been at war ever since Hagar and Sarah hated each other. And if Abraham had just been patient and trusted God, he would have given Sarah the son that he did give, Isaac. And uh, all of this could have been avoided. So, all that's to say that this great father of the faith is not off to a great start. He's not. He didn't trust God. He was afraid with his wife, Sarah, going into Egypt. He, didn't, he was impatient when God promised them descendants and he had a child with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and all this. And yet, what was Abraham able to do at this point? Well, he became a friend of God. 
is the description that James 2.23 gives us, Abraham, who was called the friend of God. How did that come about? Let me tell you how Abraham became a friend of God. It was all God. It was all God. And, and to understand that, you've got to understand a covenant. And I love the concept of a covenant because you and I don't really, in today's society, we don't really understand what a covenant in the Bible is. For us, a covenant today is like an agreement where some folks come together and sign a contract and agree to get along or agree to accomplish something or agree to do something. In a Bible, the covenant is much different. The closest thing we have to a covenant today, I guess, is like a marriage where everything that belongs to you is mine, everything that is mine belongs to you, and uh, everything in our future we share. And there are several covenants in the Old Testament. There are covenants between equals. If you read 1 Samuel 20, 16, you'll see the covenant between David and Jonathan. You remember the best friends? They were best friends, and they cut a covenant between each other, and everything that David had belonged to Jonathan. Everything Jonathan had belonged to David. They shared all things equally and in common, and they were like, I guess, Indian blood brothers. You know, we might have some kind of comparison to that today. So, there were covenants between willing equals like David and Jonathan. There was also in the Old Testament covenants between unwilling unequals. Unwilling unequals. And that's in 1 Kings 20, 34. King Ahab defeats King Ben-Hadad. Let me get that right. King Ahab defeats King Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad, the defeated king, says, please don't kill me. I will give you all the lands back that we took from you, and you can come into our land and open up businesses. I think it says in the Old Testament, actually open up booths. So they opened up booths of business in Ben-Hadad's land because he was the defeated king. And King Ahab, as unwilling unequals, because he had defeated Ben-Hadad, said, since you have done this for me, I will let you live, and I will make a covenant with you that you know that what I say is true. It's kind of like a binding agreement between unwilling unequals. Now, why is this important? Because the third kind of covenant is the kind between willing unequals. And that kind of covenant is the one that existed between God and Abraham. They were unequals. There's no way Abraham could have ever entered into a covenant agreement with God because they weren't on the same level. But God, in His grace, reached down and said, Abraham, I will make a covenant with you. And if you obey my commands, I will bless you and will bless your descendants. And I will curse you if you disobey me. But if you obey me and follow my commandments, I will bless you and you will have many descendants. And, and Abraham entered into a covenant agreement with God, even though they were not on equal levels. And, and Abraham became the covenant head. And that's how the covenant relationship between God and the children of Israel began. The children of Israel became God's chosen people. And, and he became their God because of the covenant agreement that God cut and opened up between him and Abraham. And, and let me just say this in passing, too, that uh, the word covenant is a lot more significant than you might think because the Greek word for covenant is actually diatheke in the Greek. And for some reason, when the Bible translated um, 
our, our English translation from the Greek and Hebrew, they translated diatheke testament instead of covenant. And so actually the Bible is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's been translated Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is God and Abraham. The New Testament, the New Covenant is God and us through Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament. Jesus is the establishment of the New Covenant. And that's why it's so important for us. And so everything that you see happening between God and Abraham, Israel becoming God's chosen people, we now are God's people made possible through the covenant that Jesus Christ and the new covenant in the New Testament established for us. So if, if you get a sense of what that makes possible, God's saying everything that I have, everything that I can do is yours. This is a covenant agreement. And everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you hope to be belongs to me. If you will obey my commandments, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you'll bring curses upon yourself. It's a covenant agreement, just like the one God entered into with Abraham, God entered into with all those who through faith believe in Jesus, who became the covenant for us. So what we do, since God has entered into a covenant with us, we spend so much time, I think, wanting things from God, asking things from God, praying, seeking things from God. And he's saying, and I've heard, you know, I've heard this from him over and over again, stop seeking my hands and seek my face. You know, when all you do is seek God, God's hands, all you want is just what he can give you. But when you seek his face, what that says is, I just love you and want to be in a relationship with you and just spend time with you. And when you seek his face, all these other things will be added unto you. Seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So how do you seek God's face? Well, the same way you develop any other relationship. You make a commitment and then you spend time together. And you spend time with God by spending time in his word, by spending time in prayer. And it's no coincidence that the more time you spend with God, the, the more intimate your relationship with him becomes, just like any other relationship. If you have a friend, you know, you, you might have a few friends that, that you're close to at one time, and then you separate, and then a year later you pick up the phone and you can pick up right where you left off. I think that's the way a lot of people are with God. Um, but, but if you cultivate that relationship you can become even closer and you can become even deeper and more intimate in your relationship with him, spending time with him just as you would any other friend. So how do you go about living by faith? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, every person who's listed in this roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11 is listed for their faithfulness because of some step of faith they took because of some risk they were willing to take. I don't know anybody who, who I would call faithful who has not had some problem come up in their life and, and some risk that they had to take a step of faith. They had to step outside their, their comfort zone and trust God and follow him. It says that Abraham, by faith, went out to a place 
that he did not know. Have you ever really stopped and thought about that? God says, Abraham, I want you to pack up. I'm going to take you to another land. And Abraham says, okay. And so he packs all his possessions and he heads down to the end of his driveway and he says, all right, I'll turn right or left or go straight. Where am I going? You know, Abraham, and, and, and I've learned this over and over again, God does not reveal to us the finish line. He reveals to us the next baby step. And when you take that baby step of faith, then the next step is revealed and the next step and the next step. And I, you know, I hear people pray all the time, God, I want to know your will. I want to know where we're going with this. I want to know what you're going to do. And I, and I think God is saying, I've already revealed to you the step I want you to take. You take that step. Why should I reveal 10 steps when you haven't been obedient in the first one yet? That would just open you up to greater disobedience if I reveal more to you. So you take that one step and you take the next step and you take the next step. I don't know if I told you all this, but I, I experienced this in my own life. When I, when I felt the call to ministry, I was at Georgia Tech and I transferred to Samford and Samford's tuition was fairly expensive. But if you declared going into the ministry, your tuition was cut in half. And so, you know, I, I, I tell my father, Dad, I think I need to go to Samford and he said, why? And I said, because I, I think I'm going to the ministry. He said, well, can you, can you write a note to that effect and, and get your tuition cut in half? And I said, no, sir, not yet. He said, well, when you can, would you please let me know as soon as possible? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. So after the first year at Sanford, I, you know, I did feel the call of the ministry and, and uh, was able to, to let my father know and, and the tuition was reduced accordingly. But all the while, you know, I would have liked to have known that one day I'd be in a great church like First Baptist Tifton while I was at Sanford. I probably would have been overwhelmed, and God knew that. And so, no, he doesn't reveal where you're going to end up. But he just gives you one step at a time, and you just seek his face, and you just spend time with him. And, and if you do that, and if you're obedient in what he has revealed to you, I promise you, He'll reveal the next step. But why reveal the next step when you haven't been obedient in the first one? And that's what I found out about the will of God and the risk that is inherent in living by faith. They'll come to a crisis point and you've got to decide, am I going to step out in faith here and trust God or am I going to retreat? And when you get to that, that place, if you step out, God will bless you and he will lead you. If you retreat, you'll sit there and wait and wait and wonder where God is and why he seems silent. And all the while, God is shouting, take a step, trust me. That's what Abraham did. He set out not knowing where he was to go. Susan, I shouldn't tell this story, but I'm going to anyway. When Susan and I went on our honeymoon, I wanted it to be a surprise. Because, you know, she's kind of, she likes to know. I just put it like that. And uh, so, you know, she's, she's packing for the honeymoon, and she says, well, should I pack a bathing suit or an overcoat? And you know what she was doing? She was trying to sneak, sneakily find out where we were going. And I thought, mm, I didn't want to tell her everything, but I just, you know, well, let's just pack for a summer vacation. So that's what she did, and I was, I was able to some extent to keep secret from her where we were going, and yet she trusted me enough 
to know that, you know, we were going we to go and it was going to be good and, and uh, she was going to be packing appropriately. And I think about that sometimes with Abraham. He didn't know how to pack. He didn't know where God was going to take him, but he trusted God enough just to pack up everything and head out and trust each step of the way that God would reveal to him where he was to go. The second thing that happens when you live by faith is that you will grow. You will grow. You ever wonder why you haven't been growing much in your Christian life? Well, when was the last time, as someone put it, when was the last time you attempted something only God could do? When was the last time you really took a step of faith? When was the last time you took a risk? And if it's been a while, that might be why, why your Christian growth is stagnant. Because it's when you take a step of faith, when you take a risk, when you trust God and believe God and he's revealed to you that next baby step and you take that step, that's when you grow the most in the Christian walk. I believe that so strongly. The greater the risk, the greater the growth. Because so often, not only does a step of faith accomplish great things for the kingdom, but a step of faith also accomplishes great things in the life of the one who is faithful. Accomplishes great. And I'll tell you why, why I know that. If you've ever been here on Sunday night and heard mission team reports, young people come in, adults come in, and they talk about what they are able to do on the mission field, but you know how they always conclude? They say, you know, I grew a lot more. I was blessed a lot more than what we were able to accomplish. God did a great work in me while I was out there working, doing something for the kingdom. And I see that over and over again. So I'm sure that's why Bill does mission trips. He does youth mission trips because, um, because of what it does on the field, the difference they're able to make, but also because the difference it makes in the lives of the young people who go. Because when you take a step of faith and when you go out and take a risk, you will grow. Abraham is the friend of God, and he is called faithful. And even though he has kind of a checkered start, he obeys God in mighty ways. Heading out, having a son, willing to give his son back to God, not really understanding everything and yet trusting God all along the way. I guess that's a question. Are you willing to trust God when you don't understand? Are you willing to to rest in Him and believe in Him and love Him even when things aren't going your way? That's the faith that He wants. And when you can say, I trust you, God, and I love you, and I believe in you no matter what, and take that step, that risk, He will bless you and you'll be called faithful. Let's bow together.